Hi, welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Director's Deep Dive Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm Jake. This is a podcast about the filmographies of directors we love. If you've been following along so far with our season, you know that we are talking about the director Spike Jones, and we've previously talked about his first two films, Being John Malkovich and Adaptation. And today we are talking about his very divisive and probably our least popular of the film in the series so far, Where the Wild Things Are. But before we get to that, how was your week, Jake? So far, so good, Andrew. I can't complain too much. Uh, my stepbrother's been staying with me while he transitions into a new apartment, so that's been kind of fun having him around. Nice. Is it like the movie Step Brothers? Like, are you getting to crazy hijinks <laughs> or an odd couple situation, or is it? Oh, we were beefing for a while um, until he sucker punched my brother in the face, and so now we're getting along a lot better. <laughs> I mean, that's, that seems like a perfect thing for what Step Brothers is supposed to be for. Yeah, uh, no, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, playing a lot of Catan, watching some movies that he's never seen before. We watched uh, we watched Mandy together maybe like a week ago. Sweet. That's, um, I feel like that's one of the huge movies that's a big gap for me. And it's weird because, you know, it's one of those films that I know I would love. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. But I know that once I see it, it'll be one of my favorites. Yeah, it's right up. I mean, we were talking about Adaptation being Nicolas Cage's best performance. And I think you... I don't know why I didn't think of it at the time, but Mandy, I think, is definitely in there. It's got this... It's got this nice range where there are some moments where he takes things seriously, but then there's other moments where he's allowed to just freak out and do his thing, and it's a lot of fun. It goes full-on cage. Oh, yeah. Uh, plus Linus Roach as the main bad guy. is He's pretty great in it as well. Nice. And then there's some... Just the, the coloring in it is amazing. I love that. And unrelated to this podcast, but hopefully one day I'll have one where I completely nerd out about board games. But I have a hot take that I don't think Catan is that good. It, I like it for the aspect of it being a nice introductory game into you know more unusual board games outside of you know like Monopoly or Sorry and stuff. But I find that it's just I don't like games where the winner is determined like 18 row, uh, 18 turns before it happens. You know, it's very hard to completely change the dynamics of the game in Catan. Whereas like if someone gets like a real steady lead, that's, it's usually pretty easy for them to hold on to it. Yeah. I don't mind playing Catan. It's like a very easy board game that a lot of people can get into. Mm-hmm, I don't, totally. it's, it's like just long enough that it keeps people's interest, but not too long where they're not interested. Because there's some games that I think take like five to six hours to play, and I would love to play them. I don't have anyone to play them with. So Catan's like that perfect middle ground. For sure. There are definitely, um, there, there's a whole world of board games. So that's... Like the Game of Thrones board game, which right on the box it says like one game takes about eight hours. Oh, that's that's too much. There's... That's, like, that's like the shit I want to fucking play all the time. So... Um, the one board game I'd recommend to anyone listening to this, and you can definitely email us in and you'll let us know some board games you like, but 
the trail at House on the Hill is the best one. It takes, I think you need, you need a minimum of three people, I think possibly four, and it's just this really great horror game that's real spooky and has some HP Lovecraft elements to it, and it's just, that's the one game I introduce everyone to if they've, you know, if they've only had Monopoly as their board game experience. I've never played a horror board game, so I'd be curious to see how that played out. Yeah, you would love it. So you said that you've watched Mandy this week. Has there been anything else that you've watched that's been notable? Uh, I mean, I watched Inside Out, but that was a rare experience in and of itself. Nice. Um, funny enough, we... Uh, me and my girlfriend recently started this new series. I mean, I have to Google the title because I don't remember. It's called Stone Quackers. Um, I just like checked it on Hulu, and it's like a very, I don't know, just like sort of heady cartoon. It's got that, you know, Cal Arts uh, animation style that like, you know, Steven Universe and all those other things have, and it's just a very like chill um i i guess probably it must count as like a stoner comedy it has you know all the sort of hallmarks of that sort of thing that you'd watch at like 2 a.m and so it's pretty cool it's watched a few episodes of it so far and it's really funny and i like it remind me of the title again stone quackers quackers. (laughs) i've not heard of this nor have i seen on hulu yeah it's cool it's got you know uh anthropomorphic animals and stuff um okay so it's cool uh another that brings to mind though uh something that i watched not recently but finished and absolutely loved was um and these cartoons are uh, they remind me of each other though kind of different is uh the midnight gospel which is like a mini series on netflix i don't know if they're doing more of it but it's got this really interesting art style and the episodes are basically kind of plotless um it's just mostly this guy traveling the universe while like spouting off these like philosophy monologues which you know that description sounds horrible to me but it actually works out really well and it's kind of a you know a very zen show both figuratively and literally i've heard nothing but praise for that show though i've not checked it out yet the ending episode is amazing and uh, truly, truly crushing and heartbreaking. Yeah, I heard there's an episode where he like interviews his dying mother or something like that. It's an interview that he did with his mother back in 2013 when she was dying of cancer, and she has since like passed okay. away. So it's a post, it's a posthumous thing, and it's a uh, yeah, it's really, really good and very you know destructive. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, kind of like fragmented, but I'm trying to, I'm making, I'm making a goal to you, Jake, and to listeners. I'm going to get back onto my movie grind. What with, you know, the Criterion channel just adding that whole slew of movies, I'm going to make sure that between this next week, I'm going to really sink my teeth into them. Yeah, I've been watching kind of just odds and ends things here and there. There's nothing I've been like dying to watch lately i don't know why i just haven't been like the other gibsy must have been yesterday Rewatched the mummy for the first time in years 
which was a ch- which was a childhood favorite of mine. So that was fun to revisit. I think when we're done recording, I might watch The Mummy Returns. You should watch The Scorpion King with The Rock. Oh, that's that's after. Yeah, I don't know why I've just been watching these old nostalgic movies that I watched as a kid. I mean, nostalgia can be good. It can also be super dangerous. Oh, of course it can. So I am just thought of a new segment on this spot. So, you know, listeners, you're seeing behind the curtain. But something I think would be a good idea to add into the mix is similar to how we end the segment of the, of the podcast, you know, recommending movies for the viewers to listen. I'm thinking we're going to have host recommendations. So between this and the next episode, we'll each uh, give each other movies to watch and then kind of give, you know, initial thoughts in the next episode. That'd be interesting. Yeah, so so for you, Jake, the movie that I will have you watch is Secrets and Lies by Mike Lee. Okay. Yeah, and so you can get it on the Criterion channel. You could also get it on Amazon Prime, I'm sure, lots of places, but that's one of the best relationship dramas. Did you uh, talk about this last week? I bet this, this title sounds familiar. Yeah, because uh, the Criterion Channel just put in a whole collection of Mike Lee's films, and so um, I'm thinking you should jumpstart your viewing into him with Secrets and Lies. Okay, nice. If I had to recommend one for you, I would say check out National Treasure. I think it's been a while since you've seen it. Okay, I will. I'll watch National Treasure again, and I'll give it like my full, um, you know, honest attention. No. No um, sarcasm watching or anything. Let's talk about some where the wild things are. <clears throat> yes, where the wild things are. What an interesting, or truly like an interesting time capsule of a movie. And it's one of those things, I'm glad that we finally got to um, a movie like this, because it would have been difficult, I think, to talk about an entire director's work with no bad movies you know because it's you know almost hard to talk about someone who has an entire flawless filmography but this is such i think such an interesting point in spike jones's career because this is a movie that has so many elements that work really well that just completely falls flat yeah i wouldn't even say that it's a bad movie per se i think it's just long I think when you take a, what a, a twelve to fifteen page kid, like or you know like a very young child book, and extrapolate that into an hour and forty minute movie, like, so a lot of it seems like just fluff. Especially when you know what it's building towards and you know the message that it's getting you like getting at. Yeah, I mean props to. I mean I think that there is something very commendable about Spike Jones and his co-writer, that they took a book that I think, when I was reading Roger Ebert's review of it, it has said it has nine sentences in the entire book. Like, it's taking that and turning it into a whole movie is really a monumental task in itself. But, you know, you can't, you know, but movies, you can't really award them on, you know, participation trophies. It's really the final product and what exists there. And I think, you know, one of the intentions of this podcast was to look at how previous works inform um, 
inform future works by artists and how uh, you can see and how you can see where ideas germinate and stuff. And one of the things that really spoke to me about how this film didn't work was was the was the pacing in being John Malkovich. Because um, with where the wild things are, you know, it's I understand that it's a studio movie and you know there are audience expectations like all right you can, you have to establish the family and everything but then get max to where the wild things are you know but i couldn't help but notice how rushed and cramped uh the introduction felt uh you know with introducing the family and the family dynamic and everything than did compared to being john malkovich where you know in that movie it was what at least 20 25 minutes uh, before you even saw the portal, right? Or maybe it was closer yeah, to 15. But close. it was, it gave a great amount of time to just introduce the characters, get to know everything, and then throw this total mindfuck of a plot device and, you know, bring us into this crazy world. Whereas, while, he, you know, I think he did his best with kind of just, it, the whole, like, beginning just didn't feel really earned you know and the scenes itself were rather gorgeous you know with the snowball fight and the fort being crushed and the tantrum he has in his sister's room and ultimately like the fight with the mom but it is so it just felt so short and just you know i didn't care about it at all no i you're definitely not wrong i because i'm guessing like that one shot that last three seconds of the globe that says like to max from dad you're led to believe that the dad's dead which i don't want that to be assumed i don't want that my to be my responsibility like i want to spend some time with max like i want like i kind of want to feel his pain a little bit more so that it truly is seeming like this is just a child acting out from trauma and not just a little piece of shit you know what i mean uh, one counterpoint I would give to, though I totally agree with that point, because so, um, I so I watch almost all my films at home with subtitles, uh, mostly just because like I'm somewhat hard of hearing, and you know, um, and one thing I noticed this time watching is that during like one of the intro scenes, you can overhear the sister in the background talk to a friend on the phone saying like, "Oh, you know, this is at my dad's." So. It, she, so they establish. I actually like the way of establishing that the parents are divorced and he's not dead that way. So it, oh, what? He's not dead at all. No, she. So in one of the first scenes, the sister uh, in the background is on the phone to her friend and is talking about something and is like, "Oh no, I have to go to my dad's this weekend." Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, but I agree with you. If he didn't have, if he didn't have that little moment, then like the globe feels really cheesy because. Yeah, oh, that's a like I said, it's sort of like a exposition thing. Oh, that's a terrible setup. Like, I feel like that much anger should be about something way worse than his parents being divorced. Yeah, or just like, or it could, you know, I'm willing to accept it as being just, you know, adolescence, like existentialism. But give me, give me more room to breathe. You know, I yeah, need totally. more like, like you can't have snowball fight scene and then and then the fight just right then there because then i just think the kid is crazy give me more like i don't know i just like think of 
you know, something like the intro to Tree of Life. Like, I feel like that's what it needs. Just more of that sort of, like, idyllic, um, you know, just uh, adolescent joy and then, like, show it. But, I mean, at the same point, like, and I do, I'm definitely not going to make excuses for this film the whole time, but it is interesting seeing that, you know, being John Malkovich was an indie made like during the 90s boom and so they had you know they obviously had the answer to his studio but they could do basically whatever they wanted whereas where the wild things are was an 80 million dollar like warner brothers movie so they had you know seeing spike jones work in the studio system i can see like how these constrictions would have made and so i wonder like which choices would have been his and what would have been like demanded by the studio mm-hmm well, there's certainly like a lot of things I think that still carry over from previous previous stuff. So, like when we talked about being John Malkovich and adaptation, we talked about some of the stuff that really stood out there was just the idea of uh, being alone and wanting to be another person in some in some way. And I think that in this you get that as well. Um, I think there's it's not a coincidence that before Max disappears, he's dressed up in that little onesie that he has that makes him look like an animal. Um, and then, of course, you just have characters that are contemplating things that are way beyond themselves, wherein this Max is uh, wondering about his position in the universe and wondering if one day the sun is going to die out and he will die along with it. So those are things that are very common or seem to be common in Spike Jones's work, and we certainly will get more of it when we visit her. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, it definitely talks about people's place in the world and sort of their roles in it um so before we get to any of like the performances because uh i definitely have some things to say about that i so this is the same cinematographer that he used for um adaptation and being john malkovich and fun fact um actually i don't know i don't have the name of the person pulled up right here but it was the same cinematographer who shot um lost in translation which is an interesting little um you know, fact considering that it was by his, you know, by his ex-wife Sofia Coppola, and so it's interesting seeing the collaboration and stuff between there. Which, and you just said it was it was the same cinematographer as being John Malkovich in adaptation. Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah, I can kind of I can kind of see it. This one obviously has a lot more like sweeping cameras and shaky cam, which I think thematically is kind of works. This. And I think this, and I think this is where you can finally see the true, um, the true difference between us, between like a Charlie Kaufman Spike Jones film and Spike Jones as a director. Because I, when I noticed that, it's like I was saying, oh wow, you know, there's way more camera movements, like a lot more like handheld and these shots that are, you know perfectly synced to you know a tracking shot going uh going this diagonal direction and going and then cutting to one in the opposite way and all these different lens flares and sort of cinematic flourishes um that were not in adaptation or being a john malkovich and you realize that i think it's because um a charlie kaufman script is so 
novelistic and you know it's almost it's almost like a piece of literature and so it's interesting when you look at things like um eternal sunshine which do have you know that cinematic language with what michael gondry does and then uh and synecdoche new york does but these first two uh adaptation being on malkovich it really doesn't have any of that sort of extraordinary camera work that we see in this or in her which you know i think is where he's got it toned the best because i do think one of my few criticisms on this film is that there are a lot of um uh, shots in this that probably could have just been cut out where it's you know i don't always find it to be a sort of lame criticism to call something pretentious but i it does feel as if some things are just not needed in the film yeah no totally because i think we were saying earlier, like this movie to me feels it probably feels like 15 to 20 minutes too long i think like a great runtime for this would be like an hour and 20 minutes because it's not it's not an overly complicated story like what they're trying to tell it's basically just the inverse of peter pan mm-hmm. oh completely uh, which what this movie did remind me a lot of Wendy, uh, directed by Ben Zeitlin that came out this year. Uh, it kind of has a lot of similar feel, like definitely a lot of similar camera movements. Um, it's kind of similar locations where they've got like a sandy beach area. I think there's some like jungle spots in it at some points. Um, but what really, what really stands out to me between the two of them is I think both Wendy and where the wild things are have such an incredible score that does not fit its content interesting like i think i think where the wild things are is one of those movies where i think it's easy to sit back and the score is so amazing that i think you think that the movie that those particular scenes are heavy-handed or have more uh, emotion than they actually do to them that's interesting you say that because i'm actually in the complete opposite place when it comes to this score. And it might be, it's a contender for the thing I like least about this film, to be honest with you, which is interesting to me because I truly, truly love the score her so much. Like, I think it's one of the, you know, one of the better film scores there is. And, you know, and with it being also by, you know, the, uh, by arcade fire, it's interesting that it'd be so different, but I think, and I think to an extent I could probably agree that it could be a tonal mismatch and maybe in maybe in a different film it would have different context. But this I feel like the score brings this film squarely into that territory of, you know, sort of like stomp folk like uplifting um like uplifting folk oh, uh earnest movies. You know what I'm talking about? Like something like kings of summer or me earl and the dying girl that sort of like uh superfluous just very uh sundance e film you know like oh, it, totally yeah now to be fair though if anyone's going to do like a sundance um you know cheesy indie coming of age drama you know there is few people you can find better than spike jones to do it but it's still i feel like the music there's just so many scenes where it's like where i could just think of i could think of parts in her where if like the music was there instead of this it would feel that much more impactful like i think of um you know because possibly my favorite 
musical cue in her is in the scene when Theodore is on the beach and um, he's talking to he's talking to the AI and she's like, oh, I wrote a new piano piece and it's that uh, one like piano melody that plays over it. And I th- I was thinking of just like one of the scenes where Max is chasing um, Carol through the woods. I was thinking, man, if it had that piano piece over it instead of what they're playing now, I would find this moment like really touching. But instead, it just felt way too earnest, too you know, just sort of uh, just like too nostalgic, too cheesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I kind of agree. Like, I like the score as it is. Like, I think it could easily be something that I could throw on and just like kind of listen to, and I think it would be nice. Um, but when you compare it, or like, when you pair it with the movie. I don't know. There, there seems to be this mitch, this mismatch between the two. Completely. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that. It definitely feels like I wish the score was different. Um, speaking though of the actual cinematography, not necessarily on the camera movement levels, but on the color grading, the lighting, and things like that, I think it you know just knocked out of the park. It looks gorgeous. Um, lot so many of the scenes just you know like on with when it'd be like shot near sunset and things like that just look great and they managed to make the film truly amazing did you watch this on blu-ray i watched it on uh i watched it on amazon so but i've got uh, i have a 4k tv and so it's and i was i think it's streamed it in 1080 so it's still it still looked good enough, but I have a Blu-ray of her, and so that's what I'll be watching. That yeah, I, I watched this on Blu-ray, and some of it felt very dark, but I don't know if maybe just I had some terrible background lighting that made it seem that way. But a lot of scenes felt very dark and hard to follow along. Especially anything, especially anything at night. Interesting. I didn't necessarily. I didn't think that. So, could be a number. Of, could be a number of factors. Yeah, maybe just a tra- bad transfer. I don't know. Um, one thing I'm gonna say about this movie that truly though blew my mind was just the, the incredible like effects. Like, I have not been impressed by like, uh, you know, I guess special effects or CGI in like a film in forever, really probably mad max the last one uh, mad max fury road and what those two films have in common is the majority of it being practical effects and it just makes me it makes my heart you know ache for a time when practical effects were uh really the lead because you look at sort of because you look at the wild things and just the fact that they're mostly these um you know costumes that are so like intricately well done and then just embellished with cgi it makes it look you know amazing like actually something wonderful to look at where you know rather than a marvel movie which just you know just bores yeah i do not mind the look of the wild things at all um i like how they were done quite a bit i like their sort of weird sort of like creepy um not like cartoony but i don't know there's just like something about them that like feels off but at the same time feels perfect for the movie yeah it doesn't go into uncanny valley uh arizona but it looks like how 
the drawings in the book did, but not um, but not outrageous or. Yeah, I liked it. I think the big biggest mistake in the entire movie was not having Catherine Keener play the voice of one of the wild things. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. She, I mean, she would have been perfect for. It. She has like the perfect voice for that. Or more just like thematically, like him running away from his mother. It would have. I feel it would have made perfect sense if she was the voice of a wild thing. That was like trying to get him to see how you can't always be wild and out of control. I could see. I I think that I would fully co-sign that idea in a movie that was a little more under control. But I feel like it since it's already so earnest and kind of just sappy to begin with that that might take it into unwatchable territory. But I definitely that I I can definitely co-sign that train of thought. Speaking of the voice acting, though, that's a perfect segue into one of the things so amazing about this film is that this just proves how James Gandolfini was one of our greatest actors. I liked his voice acting. I liked that there was get Chris Cooper back in there. Uh, Paul Dano as uh, as the goat guy. That was a pretty good choice. Forrest Whitaker. Was... Forrest Whitaker, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was great. And I just wish that there was more opportunities to get all of them. But James Gandolfini, it was so just, I don't know. It's really amazing because I know I'm sure it's a similar way where it's like where I grew up with, you know, the Sopranos, like playing on the background basically all the time. Like my parents watched it every, uh, every Sunday and I've seen it um, probably you know, four or five times since originally aired. And so that's something, that's a piece of art that's completely ingrained with myself. And so I associate James Gandolfini so much with Tony Soprano, just in that character, because he, you know, the in in my opinion, I feel like that was a Daniel Day-Lewis level of, you know, character and just the way he embodied everything about him. And, but it's so good that one, that you would you could watch that and you could think like oh that that's all he can do you know they just found the perfect person to play that but this is one of those perfect examples where you think like oh he can actually do the exact opposite he can play like you know a tender um confused hurt individual who you know has these elements of like being a child and so it's interesting like seeing that performance and seeing him being able to just do something this like this subdued but also having some of those elements uh, of like adolescent rage is truly remarkable what did you think of the guy who played max yeah i mean i'm like i don't know i can be very wary of child actors to begin with like there are obviously some that can really you know really knock it out of the park you know i think one of the best examples from the last couple of years are um you know brooklyn prince from the florida project or um the girl who plays charlie in hereditary but like other than that i can sometimes like i don't know child actors don't really sell it for me but i think for the most part he did a great job you know it's just um you know i think he had a tough role too, trying to like fully like capture an unbelievable, uh, in a believable way. And I'm sure it must've been like a weird vulnerable place as like a kid to get into. But you know, I felt like he was convincing enough, but I, don't know, I feel like that role could be kind of be interchangeable for me. 
It was too bad we never got a chance to see Jake Lloyd in that role. I'm not sure. I might know Jake Lloyd, but I'm not sure if I know by name. Oh, he's the guy that played Anakin Skywalker in The Phantom Menace. Oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> he's terrible. Yeah, I mean, oof. Rest in peace. I mean, I know he's still alive, but dude's had a hard time. So. Oh, he's yeah, his his acting career is done. See, the, I think the character of Max is fairly unlikable, and I don't think there's a whole lot of redeeming qualities about him that I think I might have a hard time liking him regardless of the actor. So I guess I gotta give props to whoever played him. Like, he played that annoying, like, whining, obsessive child perfectly. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, that's what it is. Like, he's playing a child who has, you know, who's having this outburst, who's having this sort of, um, you know, conscious of crisis, and it's obviously going to get into, like, an ugly place. But, you know, I like to like the way better than, you know, Jacob Tremblay and Room. Mm-hmm. That almost derailed the whole movie for me. It's almost too bad at the end that you don't really get... I mean, I don't, I don't know. I guess I go back and forth with it. Whether or not you need something at the end that kind of shows that he's changed a little bit or has matured a little bit. Because the way that they leave it, it just kind of seems that all is forgiven and it's okay that you blew your steam and just ran away and were just sick. Right? I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of... I would say I must... I might lean towards... For most movies, I would much rather something be understated almost to the point of obfuscating it rather than over-explaining something. And so I, so I was kind of more leaning towards, like, okay, this didn't fully work for me, but, you know, I'd rather have it like that. Like, okay, just show the hug rather than go into something like overly showy well i think there are some movies that it's okay to sort of play with it a little bit and then there are some movies that seem so obvious and so archetypical that i think that you should just follow them and i don't think it's a hindrance to the movie like when you look at like peter pan and when you look at wendy um like when those two movies are clearly trying to be something like you expect them to start a certain way hit certain points along the way and then end a certain way to wrap it all together and for me, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because that's what you're getting into. So with where the wild things are, I think – but part of it, like I wish it would have just followed those beats and just let it exist as one of those archetypical stories instead of Spike Jones adding his little creative things here and there to like take control and you know make it kind of be like, hey, this was my stamp on my movie and this is how you're going to know that it is. <laughs> for sure. But that's just one man's opinion. Well, well, we're providing the world a vital service, Jake. We're, you know, two white guys talking about movies. Cause... Yeah, the world doesn't have enough white man opinions. <laughs> yeah, because that hasn't existed before. So, um, you have any other sort of final thoughts on? Um, not a bad rewatch. I think it's one of those movies that every few years, I think. You could kind of be like, oh, where, yeah, where the wild things are. You know, I'd like to give that another chance. And then I think it's always going to be one of those movies you're always just going to want to give it another chance to. For sure. I think ultimately this movie is a good um, high schooler movie, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like this is the type yeah. where if you're if the only thing you've ever really been exposed to film wise is just, you know, 
mainstream things, which are look be looking at an interest in film, you want something that's just that might sort of inspire you. I feel like this is one of those good films. Yeah, I think of like back in high school, one of those movies for me was The Science of Sleep, where you know I didn't really know anything about movies at that point, but it's just like, whoa, man, this movie is so wild, like it's like so surreal. Like this is a good movie to smoke weed too. And so I feel like, <laughs> so I feel like where the wild things are is sort of one of those movies where it's like, oh yeah, I remember this book. Look how and you know it might introduce someone to, you know unusual filming things so it is an interesting entry in spike jones's filmography given that you know three quarters of his filmography seems to have this sort of this heady ideas to it that he's playing with when this seems so very straightforward well it's interesting that this is that his most accessible film is is easily his weakest you know this is the least barrier of entry to his films where I think adaptation probably has the highest one where it's like, uh, whereas like this, I feel like, you know, regardless of, you know, your film of your film knowledge, you can enjoy it at least on a, on some aspect. Yeah. I think there's still, there's still definitely some things to like about this movie. Like I say, like, I think the score is something that I will always return to. I think some of the voice performances is something I'll always return to. Um, but just little things like the runtime in the middle of his time on the island, um, Max himself, I think those will always be things that detract from it. So there's there's a good balance. I think there's enough to, to go back to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If I were rating it, I'd say I'd give it a three and a half out of five. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the villain on this one. I'm gonna give it two and a half. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Yeah, it's not a film that I probably I don't think I would put it on again unless I was watching it for a podcast or something. Or if I wanted to specifically, you know, look how a shot was done. Because I honestly really the way the sequence of the snowball fight was staged was really perfect. There. It, it lined up the shots in such a way that it had it fit together in a perfect little puzzle. And I love when films do that. So I could see myself watching it just to see how that sequence was filmed again. Oh, but one thing that... I wanted to bring up. Um, were you surprised at how, how sort of over-the-top violent the movie was at points while also kind of downplaying it? Like the dirt ball fight? I was watching it and you know, watching it and thinking like the way they're being pelted with these like rocks and mud balls and people are like getting cut and scraped and yet it seems so like vicious and yet so downplayed. I thought it was, that was kind of a weird tone to it. I agree with that. It, that was a very strange moment in the movie. And the and there were some odd tonal things. Like I feel like it could have been something ripped out of a char- like a poor Charlie Kaufman ripoff is when uh, he rips off the guy's arm. And it's oh, and all the sand, falls sand and then later on he just has like a stick stuck out of it. Very odd tone, tonal things like that. For sure, yeah, that's a uh, that's the thing. I mean, and ultimately, like at the end of the day, you know, I do feel like it's a very kitschy, earnest, you know, coming of age Sundance drama. But you know, if Spike Jones did kind of proves that he can do it better than almost anyone else definitely sweet so i think we're uh ready for some recommendations 
Yeah, well, like I was saying earlier, I think a, a very good companion piece to this movie is Wendy. Um, or even Beasts of the Southern Wild, I think. Beasts of the Southern Wild is really great. I love that film and has amazing cinematography. Yeah, they both, like, I think all three of those movies sort of play in this interesting sort of fantastical world about children sort of coming into themselves and learning how to navigate the world, all set to a, a fairly decent or uh, cinematography, and they all three of them have excellent scores. For sure. The, those are great recommendations. I haven't seen Wendy yet, but I'm going to give that uh, give that a watch. I actually have two recommendations this week, too. So the first one it isn't really anything thematically related to this film. However, um, since this is like a coming-of-age film that I don't feel like really hits the mark, I'm recommending what, in my opinion, is probably the best coming-of-age film of, you know, the at least the second half of this decade, and that's uh, Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, which I cannot have enough great things to say about. You know, just watch, watch that movie on repeat. If It just recently got added to Netflix as of the recording of this episode, so if you are at all interested in coming-of-age drama, it's perfect. And one thing I can say about this film that I don't think any other film could possibly do is that it made me cry during a Dave Matthews band song. So you got <laughs> So Greta Gerwig has power as a director. Um the other film I'm going to recommend uh is what I think kind of is an underrated James Gandolfini role and that is the movie Killing Them Softly. So Killing Them Softly is a film that I'm pretty sure must have got, um, if it didn't get sort of critically bombed, it definitely didn't do didn't do good in the theaters at all. It was just like a real like sort of small time crime film. And it's interesting because it's directed by Andrew Dominic, who the film he did previously is one of you know the great films of. You know, from 2000 to 2009, um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is, you know, literally going to be one of the hallmarks of American cinema, you know, whenever, you know, you look at it. And so this film that he did afterwards is this really interesting, small, slow thriller, nihilistic crime drama, you know, similar, similar vibes to no country for old men in the sense of its you know bleak look at uh morality and violence but you know nowhere near as funny and basically what it's about is it's got these two um scumbag small time uh criminals it takes place in uh new orleans and post hurricane katrina who go and rob this mob protected card game and then uh Brad Pitt gets sent in as um, a hitman to go and kind of clean up the mess and kill people. And it has James Gandolfini as this, um, you know, similar like criminal, uh, uh, just total scumbag. So I mean, he plays this like sleazy despicableness in like such a way that like makes your skin crawl and it just feels so lived in. And so if you like a nice like, pulp movie like just a pure um 
crime drama, I think Killing Them Softly is a great film to watch. Awesome. But Brad, I mean, I love Brad Pitt, so. Yeah, and I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the better roles of him. It also has uh, one of the best uh, Ben Mendelsohn roles. Ooh, I do like Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, he's easily becoming one of our, you know, best character actors, and I think this is one of the, one of his best. So, yeah, so for next week, if you're listening to us, you should check out the films Wendy, Beast of the Southern Wild, Lady Bird, and Killing Them Softly. I guess you should mention real quickly, we do have an email address, Andrew, now. Uh, directorsdeepdive at gmail.com. Yeah, feel free to, you know, send us any thoughts you have about um, the movies we talk about, about the podcast in general, any suggestions you have or, you know, topics you have, we'd be more than happy to go and talk about it. Questions about our personal lives? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.